There will be the annual teen Christmas party is going to be here uh, at the church. And for information, contact uh, Jeff Phipps. So that will be here this coming Saturday night. We have a celebrity in our presence, uh, Dr. Meisinger, who's the president of Chafer Seminaries here uh, for a week to try to straighten out my theology. And uh, but we're uh, we're having a great time knocking ideas around and things of that nature. So George is here. So make sure you say hello to George. And um, then we have another visitor back here, a small guy. You won't see him, Diesel. And he, I first met him about I don't know twelve, thirteen years ago, and when I was working with WHW out in California, and he's found his way to Houston. So he gave me a call last week. So so he's here. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture teaches that when we're out of fellowship, we're walking according to the sin nature. We're not producing that which has eternal value in terms of gold, silver, and precious stones. We're producing wood, hay, and straw, no matter what it is that we do. And the only way to recover and convert from living according to the sin nature to walk by the Spirit is to confess our sins. And so when we confess our sins, God's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and that way you can make sure you're in fellowship and ready to focus on the Word this evening, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's a great privilege we have to come together to study your Word, to reflect upon what you have uh, revealed, what you have taught us, and we know that your word is sufficient for us, which means that you have revealed to us all that there is that we need to know in order to handle and face and surmount any challenge, difficulty, test, or problem in life. It's through your word that we come to understand who we are as sinful creatures desperately in need of your uh, salvation and your power and the ongoing ministry of God the Holy Spirit in our lives, and that as we uh, learn to walk by means of the Spirit, then the Spirit takes your word and uses it within our thinking and within our lives to transform us uh, from day to day into the image of Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that we might be responsive to the teaching of your word as we face our own lives and need to put into practice the same principles, the same doctrine, the same teaching that was given to the apostles that transformed their lives and that was the foundation of their ministries throughout the ancient world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, for a couple of visitors that are here this evening, we're in a study in Acts on Tuesday night. And we have completed our study through Acts chapter 12. This is the end of the second major division in Acts. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus told the disciples that they were to stay in Jerusalem until the Spirit came. And then once the Spirit came, which occurred on the day of Pentecost, they were to uh, take the gospel. They were to be his witnesses, is the technical term that's used there. They were to be witnesses throughout Jerusalem, where they were, to Judea and Samaria, the surrounding territory, to and to the uttermost part of the earth. That's the basic division of the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit comes in Acts 2, 
and from Acts chapter 2 through Acts chapter uh, 9, you have, uh, or basically through Acts chapter 6 and 7, you have the ministry of uh, the, the apostles in Jerusalem through Acts 7, the death of, the death of Stephen. Then their persecution arose. Uh, Acts chapter 8, they spread out and uh, through Philip, uh, the evangelist, and through Stephen, I mean, through Philip the Evangelist and through Peter and John, they t- the gospel is taken to Judea and Samaria. And then that section concludes at the end of chapter 12. After Peter has taken the gospel to the Gentiles, uh, to the household of Cornelius. In Acts 13, there's a major shift because it's in Acts 13 that the Apostle Paul and Barnabas will be commissioned by the church in Antioch to go and take the gospel to the Gentiles. And so that's the third division, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. So we've gone through the initial part in the first uh, seven chapters to Jerusalem and then to Judea and Samaria in the next couple of chapters from 8 through 12 and then to the uttermost part of the earth. So I paused here. We didn't meet last week because I was a pre-trib, but we paused here in order to uh, just answer a question that several people asked when I started Acts, and that was, well, what happened to all the other apostles? Because the only two that are uh, that say anything or really do anything in the book of Acts are John and Peter, and Peter is the one who is the leader and the one who is most articulate. So what happened to these others? Well, they fulfilled the mandate of Acts 1.8. They took the gospel to the uttermost part of the earth. And in the previous uh, uh, previous classes, the last two or three classes, as I've looked at these and traced out what we know of them through um, through history, through tradition and legend, trying to separate out the, the legendary and uh, the somewhat incredible from tradition, we come to understand a rough outline of where they went. We don't know in some of these traditions what the details are. But, for example, historically, when you look at um, the fact that the church left Jerusalem, the apostles left, and the, the focus of the book of Acts is, is towards the west. It's towards Greece and then to Rome. And so there's a spreading out in that, that direction. And we don't learn much about what happened to the east. We know Peter went to Babylon, which had the uh, second largest Jewish community in the ancient world and continued in Babylon for uh, a n- number of centuries. Others of the, of the uh, apostles also went to Persia, or as it was known at that time, uh, to Parthia, and some pushed beyond Parthia. Uh, for example, Thomas, as we'll study this evening, went to, went to India. Uh, when they went east... Because of the split that occurred, approximately a 1,000, between the Eastern Church and the Western Church, a lot of people in the West really did not have access anymore to very ancient written tradition in the Eastern Church. And you have the Assyrian Church, you have uh, have the um, church in uh, Persia, you have uh, other... uh, long Christian traditions in India, and they have very ancient records. And so when you, uh, when we go to these different communities, these different ethnic communities in the East, what we discover is though some of the details are mushy, some of them are somewhat fluid, they generally agree in the pattern and direction of what happened to, to these various, uh, uh, apostles, and so we can we can have a general sense of what happened without a, a, knowing all of the certainty of all the details. Now, in Matthew ten, as in the other other uh, uh, other gospels, as well as Acts chapter one, gives us a list of who the twelve disciples were, including uh, Judas Iscariot. We've looked at Simon, also called Peter, or in the Aramaic, he was referred to as Kephas. It shouldn't be pronounced Cephas like most Americans do because it was Greek, and in the Greek there's the the uh, letter is a K. It's a hard guttural, not a soft sibilant. So it's uh, Kephas and Andrew. We looked at the three James boys 
last time, you have James, the son of Zebedee, James, the son of Alphaeus, uh, also called James the Less, and then there was also James, the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when you have these these disciples that have the same name, often the traditions get fuzzy. For example, uh, in Acts 2, when the uh, apostles, when the disciples chose Matthias, Matthias and Matthew are easily confused names, and so there's confusion about just where Matthew went and where Matthias went because the, it gets fuzzy because of confusion over uh, over the name. So we looked at James, the son of Zebedee, who's the brother of John, and then um, uh, we've looked at Bartholomew, also probably as I, to be identified with Nathaniel. And tonight I want to see how far we can go if we can finish the list looking at Philip, Thomas, uh, and Matthew, and then um, uh, Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus, also known as Jude in another list. So that gets confusing in trying to identify him. Then there's Simon the Canaanite, and notice how that's spelled. Uh, it's not spelled C-A-N-A-A-N-I-T-E. He's not a Canaanite, the people from the Old Testament. He is from the village of Cana of Galilee, where Jesus performed his first miracle at the wedding in Cana. So uh, he is, that's, there's confusion because of the way the King James handled that in terms of, of its uh, transliteration uh, over into the English. But he's not a Canaanite, he's not a pagan, he is from Cana of Galilee, and then, of course, Judas Iscariot. So the first one I want to talk about is really the Apostle John, and we know the Apostle John uh, very well because there's more information about him as a writer of the gospel, the writer of the three epistles of John, and the uh, book of Revelation. There's some confusion if you read in some literature or listening to some confused pastors uh, between an individual that uh, they want to identify because the writer of Second Third John identifies himself as John the Elder. That's just another term for pastor because at that time in John's life, he was no longer functioning as a traveling apostle, but he functioned as a pastor, as a church leader in Ephesus. And that it's still the same person, but there are those who come along and try to make these different people and create even uh, greater confusion due to their uh, lack of education usually. Uh, so you have uh, John, the, the writer of the gospel. He is the one who, uh, at, towards the end of his life, he lived in Ephesus. He's the only one of the disciples probably. There might, there's possibly one other, but he's probably the only one who died a natural death, lived into his 90s according to... Uh, church tradition, uh, uh, pastored in Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus had a number of different pastors. Paul was there for a long time. Uh, Timothy was there. Apollos was there. Uh, Paul was, I mean, um, John was there. So you have uh, a number of, of apostles and apostolic associates who pastored in the Ephesus area. In the early 90s of the first century, Domitian became the emperor in Rome, and he instituted an empire-wide persecution of Christians, and part of that was uh, the banishment of the Apostle John to the island of Patmos, approximately 90 miles off the western coast of Turkey, and he was there for about three years until the... um, until Domitian died, and then he was released, went back to Ephesus. It is generally believed, although there is a competing tradition, that Mary stayed in in the uh, area of Judea. But there, but it's more likely that John uh, received the uh, mandate from the Lord Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross to uh, be. When Jesus looked down to John, said and looked at his mother and said, "Behold, your mother." looked at his mother and looked at John, said, Behold your son, that that John would uh, take on the responsibility, the filial responsibility of his son to take care of Mary, and that John uh, had that Mary was with John in Ephesus. Uh, she lived to be uh, uh, fairly old 
and she died and was buried in in Ephesus. Uh, and that is where uh, John John was buried. John was called to be a, a disciple at the same time of his, or just following that, the calling of his brother, uh, of his brother Andrew. Originally, he was a disciple of John the Baptist. We see in John one thirty five, and that he was one of the inner circle. John and his brother James. And actually, I said Andrew a minute ago, but John and his brother James and uh, Peter were the uh, were the disciples that were the closest to the Lord Jesus Christ. Going beyond the Apostle John, the next um, uh, disciple that I wanted to focus on is Philip. And there's again not a tremendous amount known about Philip, but there's a good bit said in the Scripture about Philip. Philip also is one of these. Uh, fisherman who is called by Jesus in the area of the Sea of Galilee. And turn with me to the first chapter of John, and we'll, we'll just start there. We're going to be around the Gospel of John quite a bit in terms of our Scripture references uh, this evening, so you can just flip back and forth. It's important to do that, even though... Uh, I put a lot of scripture up on the screen. I'm not putting everything up there. There's among some of the pastors. There's been discussion. I I started. I was the first pastor to really start using an LCD projector and putting a lot of scripture up on the board 14 years ago. One reason I did that is because uh, I got tired of people taking notes and they would take down the principle and write 15 scripture references and never look them up. So I wanted to say, okay, this is the point and show people exactly where it's stated in the Scripture. And you can move a lot faster if I'm showing it up on the screen and not saying, okay, now turn over here to Ezekiel and turn over here to Habakkuk and moving like that, that slows everybody down quite a bit. But the downside to that is that I find that people didn't look them up in their Bible. And you need to be going from turning to each one of these references in your Bible. Number one, you're going to learn where things are in your Bible, which is very important, or we'll start having a sword drill every Tuesday and Thursday night so that you can learn where the books of the Bible are. And um, uh, then it, you should be taking notes and indicating when there's a series of references, you should be writing those down in the margin of your Bible so that the next time you go to one of those verses, there'll be a little note there to see another verse, and then you can go to that verse and follow along, and that should be uh, be there and present in your Bible. Now, in John one thirty-five to the end of the chapter, we have the uh, <clears throat> Uh, the story of how Jesus called his, his uh, first disciples. And it starts off with Jesus coming down to the, some area of the Jordan River and being baptized by John the Baptist. As we know, that is a unique baptism because it wasn't for repentance because Jesus had nothing to do for repentance, but it was to inaugurate his ministry. And when John came, when um, uh, Jesus came down, uh, this is when um, John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then we read the next day following this, John, this is in verse 35, which is on the screen. John is standing with two of his disciples, and again he sees Jesus coming down, and he says, Again, behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And then Jesus asks them why they're following him, and a little conversation ensues, and they go after him. And one of these is Andrew, and then Andrew will go off to get his brother Simon. And then another one that joins them the following day, verse 43, the day after that, the following day Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip. So he sought Philip out, and he found Philip and says to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So now we learn that Philip and Andrew and Peter, and we'll learn from other sources, James and John, all know each other. We don't know if Philip is a distant relation, but we know that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, are cousins of Jesus. So there was a lot of close connection between these these, uh, individual disciples. 
Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And then Philip went to find Nathaniel, otherwise known as Bartholomew, to bring him to Jesus. So that's how we first learn about, about uh, Philip. Now here's a map. This is the area of, of Galilee up in the north. Down here we have the Esdralon Valley, otherwise known as the Valley of Megiddo or, or the Valley of Armageddon. This is the Sea of Galilee with Tiberias here. And then this area over on the right is a Gentile area. This is where we have the Gergesene demoniac. This is the demon-possessed man who's out living in the tombs. I'll refer to that if we get there before the end of the end of the class. So this will locate you uh, geographically. So just file that away on the corner of your mind. Turn that page when we get there. Capernaum is well-recovered archaeological site up on the west to northwest west northwest uh, or north northwest uh, shore of the Sea of Galilee and Bethsaida is on the northern. Uh, northern shore, they have uh, uh, discovered it archaeologically since the middle of the 19th century, and it was a major major fishing village. Now it's about a mile to two miles from the water. That's how much the shoreline has shifted over the last uh, 2,000, uh, 2,000 years. When, there, when we find a list of the uh, disciples, Philip is usually the fifth one listed, and there's some confusion between him and Philip, also called Philip the Evangelist or Philip the Protodeacon. What I mean by that is that those men selected in Acts 6 weren't really deacons. They served, but they serve as sort of a prototype for what will be the function of deacons uh, later on. That Philip in Acts 6 and in Acts 8 is not Philip the Apostle. They're both named Philip, though. It's a Greek name and they're named after uh, Philip of Macedon. Uh, that is the most famous Philip. Uh, Jesus called Philip to follow him the day after uh, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, the day after he's called by Andrew and Peter. And most of the time when we see action taking place, Philip and Andrew are frequently are, are interacting together, so they were close. Now that... That fits a somewhat later scenario in terms of what happens to both of them later on in life. Uh, biblically, though, Philip only appears in a couple of episodes. He shows up in Acts, uh, I mean, in John 6, 4 through 7, which is the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, Passover is approaching in verse 4. Jesus uh, has a multitude coming to him somewhere on the coast of the Sea of Galilee up by Capernaum. Uh, there is a traditional site, but it's somewhat iffy. We don't know exactly where that was. It was just out on a hillside in that general vicinity. But as all these people came, there was a problem feeding them, and Jesus decides to use this little situation to provide a, a test for Philip to see if he's where his focus is. And so when the crowd's coming, he turns to Philip, and says, okay, Philip, where are we going to buy bread that we can feed them? There's no H-E-B down the street. There's no uh, U-Totem or 7-Eleven or Stop and Go or whatever they are today around uh, down on the Sea of Galilee. Where are they going to get food to feed 5,000? And the focal point here is, Philip, are you thinking about your surroundings? Are you thinking about your circumstances? And are you thinking about the challenge that's in front of us with reference to divine viewpoint and God's provision or human viewpoint. Every situation, circumstance in life is a test. The test isn't the circumstances specifically themselves. The test is the choice that we have to make. Are we going to trust God and apply the word and the principles of the word to this circumstance? Are we going to try to handle the circumstances from our own uh, resources, uh, usually from the sin nature in one way or another. So he asked Philip, where are we going to get bread? And he, verse 6, we're told by John, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Jesus knew what was going to happen, but he wanted to engage Philip's mind in the circumstances. And Philip answered him, showing that Philip is totally focused on just human viewpoint things. He says, well, 200 denarii worth of bread isn't sufficient for them, 
um, that we couldn't even give everyone a little bit with that amount of, of bread. And so he recognizes the problem, but he has no idea what the solution is. So that's our first introduction to anything on the part uh, on the part of Philip. The next time we see Philip is in John chapter 12, verses 20 to 22. This is right before Jesus goes to the cross. It's the day after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and there's a group of Hellenistic Jews who've heard about uh, uh, Jesus, and they came to Peter, or they came to Philip, uh, which indicates that Philip spoke Greek, and that Philip, remember, he's got a Greek name, so possibly uh, he's got an orientation to to the Greek Greek culture, or maybe he was a Hellenistic Jew, or his family were Hellenistic Jews, and so they felt comfortable coming to him in order to get access to ask questions to Jesus. But the most significant passage is really in John chapter 14. John chapter 14 is part of what's called the Upper Room Discourse. The Upper Room Discourse began in uh, at the Lord's Table and the observance of the Lord's Table uh, the night before Jesus went to the cross, and it covers this uh, entire section from John uh, 14 through John uh, 17, even though between 14 and 15 they leave the uh, they leave the upper room. So in John chapter 14, we have very famous, well known passage that every one of you should have memorized. John 14 1 through 3. It's also an important uh, uh, rapture passage. In fact, there are a variety of parallels in vocabulary between this. Uh, verse John 14, this passage, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 and following, which a number of, of uh, scholars have, uh, have noted. Jesus uh, is answering a question from Peter because in the end of the previous chapter, Jesus announces that he's getting ready to leave and Peter gets all flustered and he doesn't know uh, where the Lord's going or how they're going to follow him and he's just just starting to fall apart. And so Jesus answered him in John 14, 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, or actually it refers to dwelling places. They are temporary abodes. Some people don't like the analogy, but it's basically a hotel room. And that, and that's the description of the term here. It's a temporary abode, not a permanent abode. Why is that? Because we're, that's not our ultimate destiny. We're going to go to heaven in the rapture, and we're only going to be there a short time before we come back. And so this is not a permanent abode. It's a temporary abode because our future abode is going to be uh, coming down with the Lord Jesus Christ at the second coming and then ruling and reigning with him during the millennial kingdom. But Jesus says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, see, where is he going to be? In heaven, not on the earth. So it indicates a pre-trib rapture. That where I am, there you may be also. That is, in that place that he's going to. Where I go, you know, and the way you know. And then Thomas said, we'll come see this again when we talk about Thomas in a minute. Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? Hello, Thomas, have you been paying attention? It's real easy to get down on the disciples as a bunch of dummies, but remember, they don't have the Holy Spirit. They're not getting it, not because they're inherently low IQ. It's because they don't have the Holy Spirit. They're not all connecting all the dots. It's amazing. When you look at these guys on this probably uh, Tuesday night of the or Wednesday night of the Passover week, and 51 days later when they have received the Holy Spirit and they are proclaiming the gospel with conviction and power in Jerusalem, they got it. By Acts, the end of Acts 2, they got it. In Acts 1, they still don't get it. They're still saying, Lord, when are you coming in your kingdom? Is this when you're coming in your kingdom? They're still not connecting the dots. What makes the difference is the arrival of the Holy Spirit 
who indwells us and is the one who fills us with his word. So uh, that's an important aspect uh, to recognize here. So Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said, very famous verse you ought to have memorized, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Then we get into a really interesting passage. Jesus says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Now, one of the battles that we consistently fight in Christianity is the devil destroying vocabulary, watering down vocabulary, taking phrases that sound holy and good, and then and we use those instead of what the Bible says. Or we take terms that the Bible says and we assign a meaning to them that the Bible doesn't assign. One of the ways in which people poorly express uh, conversion or what you need to do to be saved or whether or not you are saved is to state it in terms of knowing Jesus. Do you know Jesus equals in modern evangelical language, are you saved? But at this point, we know because of what Jesus said in John 13, the chapter before, as he sat down with Peter and was going to wash his feet, and they had a little discussion about that. Uh, Jesus said, all of you are clean except one, which was a reference to Judas Iscariot. What Jesus says when he says all of you are clean means all of you are saved. All of the disciples were saved. They were justified. They were regenerate at that point. So here we come to John 14, and he says, if you had known me, what does he mean by this? And it's, it's, it's very interesting. He starts off with what in Greek is a first-class condition. There are four ways to express these kinds of if clauses in the Greek. And this is the first one, and it simply means we're going to assume this first part is true. doesn't mean it's true. We're going to assume it's true. If, assuming you known me, you had known me, you would have known the Father also. What he's implying here is that they don't know him. Yeah, they see him. They see Jesus walking down the street, and they go, yeah, that's Jesus. But they don't know him. But they're saved. Wait a minute. I thought that, that knowing Jesus meant you're saved. Only if you're using bad even modern evangelical vocabulary designed by Satan to distort the truth. Knowing Jesus has to do with your growth after you're saved, not getting saved. And that's clear in this passage. In this initial interchange, too, it's interesting that Jesus is using the word oida in a perfect tense for no. And he's going to shift in verse 9 to a different word, gnosko. But the perfect tense indicates having come, come to a, a knowledge of something in the past with ongoing results. So he's really saying, if you had come to know me, if this had happened in the past, if you had really understood who I am, you would have known my father also. Again, he uses that perfect tense form indicating a past complete action. And then he says, from now on you know him, and now... He's using uh, a present tense form of gnosko, you know him, and have seen him, And but he shifts to a perfect tense. Now, I know that drives people nuts when I get into the technicalities of grammar, but if you're a native English speaker and you're speaking to a native English speaker, you process the, the, the nuances of the grammar instantly because you're a native English speaker. But we're dealing with Greek here, and so we, we don't process that automatically. But it's, it's important to understand what Jesus is saying. He's saying from now on, you are going to be present durative sense, continuous sense. You will know, continue to know uh, him, the Father, and have seen him. Those who've seen Jesus, he's going to say, have seen the Father. But you've already seen him. See, he uses a perfect tense to indicate past completed action. So he goes from you know him now and you have already seen him in the past. Why? Because you've been watching, Jesus is saying, because you've been watching me, because you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, here comes Philip. 
Philip doesn't seem real bright here either. He says, Lord, show us the Father, and it's, it's enough for us. You know, I would be shaking my head. Jesus was probably thinking about that, but he, this is a great teaching point. Philip says, show us the Father. Jesus answered him in verse 9. Now, this is really important. This is one of the most significant uh, exegetical insights you'll see on a passage like this. Have I been with you so long, Peter, I mean Philip, and yet you have not known me? And it's a perfect tense of gnosko, which means you have not come to know me in the past. Is Philip saved? Absolutely. Is Philip regenerate, justified? Absolutely. Jesus has already said that numerous times. But what he's saying here isn't, Philip, you need to know me. In other words, you need to get saved. He's saying, you trusted in me as Messiah, but after that, you really haven't come to know me. You haven't really learned who I am and all about me as you should after you're saved. So he's really talking about your post-salvation knowledge, what happens after you're saved. Have I been with you so long that you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? You've seen me, you've seen the Father. John chapter 1, the son, no one has seen the Father at any time. The only begotten has revealed him to us. Exegesis, exegeo is the verb there. Uh, John 14.10 Jesus goes on to say, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, etc. So the point is that he's making very important point to Philip is knowing Jesus doesn't mean that you've believed in him. Believing in Jesus is what we need to do to be saved. After we're saved and only after we're regenerate, do we have the capacity to come to know Jesus? Before that, we're spiritually dead, and we can't come to know Jesus. So this is uh, the conversation with, with Philip. Now, after uh, the ascension, after the period in Jerusalem, uh, we're told that Philip was a missionary. There's some tradition that he was a missionary in France, which was known as Gaul. But remember, there could be some confusion between Gaul in terms of France and Gaul is in terms of the Galatians. The Galatians were of the same ethnic stock as the Gauls. One group of Gauls or Celts went west, one group went east and settled into central Turkey. And so uh, it could be either one, uh, some indication that it's modern France, but there's also primarily the indication that he stays within the area of Turkey, central Turkey, and he went north around the Black Sea, to uh, the area of modern Ukraine. Here we have the Black Sea here. The red circle here is indicating uh, it's just north of Laodicea or Laodicea, which is where Heropolis is located, which is where Philip, I mean, yes, where Philip the Apostle settled down and where he was eventually martyred. But there is a tradition that he went into Scythia and north into Ukraine, probably circled the Black Sea, came back to this area, as did Andrew. Remember I pointed out earlier that Philip and Andrew were close? So I wonder, did they travel together because both Philip and Andrew went into that same uh, same area? Eventually, uh, Philip was, uh, was martyred in Aeropolis. Now, the next one I want to talk about this evening is Thomas, often called Doubting Thomas. Thomas is an interesting character. He's a twin, He's often referred to as Thomas Didymus. Didymus is Greek for a twin. Now, we don't know anything about his twin. We don't know if he was a fraternal twin. We don't know if he was an identical twin. If he was a fraternal twin, we don't know if his twin was a male or a female. There is some silly speculation that the twin was Jesus or or one of the other disciples, and this usually comes from... Uh, those who don't have much respect for, for the scripture, there is a uh, pseudepigraphal work. That means it's uh, work that is written under a pseudonym or a false name. That's why it's called pseudo false pigraphal. That is writing a false writing called the Gospel of Thomas, which is found down in Egypt at a place called Nag Hammadi, which was a location of a Gnostic community. Probably wasn't written until the second century or third century. 
and this is one of the favorite sources uh, for people to go for information about Jesus. They reject the four Gospels, and they want to go to something written two or 300 years later by somebody who used a false identity in, in writing it, and it's uh, one of the Gnostic Gospels that's given credibility uh, in the Da Vinci Code. So it uh, has a lot of, uh, of, you know, a lot of false, false doctrine in it. So we have uh, Thomas. Thomas is, um, <clears throat> in terms of the uh, terms of the tradition, is that he went east. He went into Parthia and traveled and had a ministry in Parthia. But he went even further east and he went into India. He traveled all the way towards the southern part of India where he established churches. Now, we're only given a couple of places in the Gospels where Thomas uh, speaks. In John 11, this is at the episode between Jesus being informed that Lazarus is sick unto death and his decision to go down to Bethany to heal Lazarus. And when he announces his decision to go down there, Thomas says... Uh, to his fellow disciples, well, let us all go that we may die with him. Now, I don't know if this is sort of a fatal... We, see, the thing is, the Bible doesn't give us a tone there, does it, George? Is he being uh, is he being fatalistic? Well, let's all go down there. We might as well all go down there and die. Or is he stating firm conviction? Well, let's all stick together. We know that the, uh, uh, that the Jewish leaders are out to get us, and if we're going to die, we're going to die, but we're going to die together. So we don't know which it is. He seems to be, though, I think it's more of the latter, that he seems to be somebody who uh, operates on a strong con- conviction. He's the same one who asked the Lord, as we just mentioned in John fourteen five, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And then the next and most significant conversation is John twenty twenty four. 24. Uh, now Thomas, called Didymus, or the twin, One of the twelve was not with him when Jesus came. He wasn't with the disciples when Jesus first revealed himself to them after the resurrection. After eight days, his disciples were again inside. So this is a a little over a week after the resurrection. Thomas is now with him, and Jesus came, and he suddenly materializes inside the room. He doesn't uh, gain access via the door or the window. uh, So that shows us something about a resurrection body being able to uh, pass through uh, solid walls. Jesus appears and says, Peace to you. And then he says to Thomas, because Thomas has been saying, ah, I'm not believing you guys unless I can put my finger in the nail prints and put my hand into the wound in his side. I'm not going to believe it with Jesus. You guys are just hallucinating. And so Jesus goes over to him and he says, Okay, Thomas, stick your finger in here. See the nail hole? So the scars of the cross are in Jesus' resurrection body. A billion years from now, when we're in heaven and we see the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to see those scars in his hand and his side. So Jesus says, look at my hands, put your finger there, reach your hand here, put it into my side. Don't be unbelieving, but believing. See, there's nothing wrong with giving people evidence that the gospel is true. Jesus did it. But he said something afterward. He said, blessed are those who come to, come to faith without the evidence. They just trust. But there's nothing wrong with needing evidence. If there was, then the Gospel of John needs to be just cut out of your Bible. Because remember, John said, these signs are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So the whole book of John, the whole Gospel, is a book of evidences to prove Jesus was the Messiah. And then Thomas... Notice, Thomas doesn't do it. He doesn't stick his fingers in the holes. He immediately recognizes that this is the resurrected Jesus, and he makes his statement, my Lord and my God. He recognizes the authority and the real- of Jesus and the reality of the resurrection. Uh, Thomas ended up in, in Africa. Let me see. I think I have a map here. Here we go. Uh, here's... Uh, a map, there's an insert here of India. He made it all the way to the south, all the way to the southern part of India, just uh, outside of this area uh, of Matt. Well, actually, the area where, the, where his traditional tomb is located is now inside the city of, uh, of Madras. I wanted to read to you a little bit of a description 
from Dorman Newman, who is a 17th century historian and scholar, and he was one of the best at his time according to their standards. And he writes that Thomas preached the gospel to the Medes, the Persians, uh, through various regions in Parthia and other nations. In Persia, he met with the Magi, whom he baptized and took along with him. Now, we don't have any way of confirming that, but uh, that was one of the uh, ancient traditions. From there, he preached in and passed through Ethiopia. Now, it's spelled a little differently. This is where we get into confusion that apparently there was a region in uh, Persia with the same name as the modern country or area of Ethiopia in Africa. But that's why there's some confusion. Did Matthew and Matthias end up in Ethiopia and Africa, or were they martyred over here in, uh, in Parthia? That's where that confusion comes from. So according to uh, Newman, 17th century British historian, church historian, says that he uh, went to India and uh, went, for, went to the southern part of India, which is where he was eventually, uh, eventually martyred in a sub, suburb of what is now uh, Madras. Now there's a long tradition of of uh, this of an Indian of a community in India that traces their founding to Thomas. I have met several uh, ethnic Indians who have traced their genealogy uh, back uh, in that direction. In fact, there's a new uh, lady who's here who is the Southwest Regional Outreach Christian Outreach Director for APAC, who uh, Sabrina, who is a her parents immigrated here from India back in the 60s, and she grew up in Dallas. And she, but her, on her mother's side, they go back numerous centuries to this same ethnic group. They trace their uh, heritage back uh, back that far. Uh, let me back up a couple of slides here. We looked at um, okay, we looked at Thomas. Thomas ends up in, in um, and he's martyred. And, and he is, they, they drive a spear through him, and he is killed in India. Then we come to Matthew, who's the tax collector. In some passages, he's referred to as Levi, so he would be, his uh, proper name would be Matthew, but he's of the tribe of Levi, so he's uh, indicated by both of these names. He's a tax collector, which actually uh, meant that he was viewed socially as far far inferior to anybody who would work for the IRS today, for example. Uh, he was; They were viewed as traitors because the way it operated in, 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 uh, in the Roman territories is that the Romans would hire someone to be a tax collector, and they would say, you need to provide us with this amount of revenue. Anything else that, uh, you, that you collect above that, you can keep. So that just opened the door for a tremendous amount of abuse, and there was a tremendous amount of abuse in Israel. And so the tax collectors, also known as publicans in the old English, not republicans, but publicans, they were, um, they were the tax collectors, and that's why they condemned Jesus, because he hung out with prostitutes and publicans. And that was uh, not socially acceptable by the by the Pharisees. So Matthew, not a lot is known about what happened to Matthew after uh, the gospel, the close of the Gospels, after the close of Acts, because he's there in Acts one, but he's uh, would be with the apostles up through Acts six or seven. We don't know what happened afterwards. Clement of Alexandria in the late second century. So this is about 150, 170 years later. Uh, says that Matthew died a natural death in North Africa. But his description of Matthew includes a lot of just, uh, you know, unbelievable material, legendary material, mystical material, things like that. So we can't really trust him. The Jewish Talmud says that Matthew was condemned, condemned to death by the Sanhedrin and was martyred by the Sanhedrin. Uh, other tradition from Eastern churches indicates that Matthew was linked to Ethiopia, but as I said earlier, we're not sure if this is the African country or a region in Parthia. Numerous other traditions do identify him as having had a ministry to kings and aristocracy and leaders 
in Parthia. Now, my speculation, and that's all it is, is speculation, since Matthew's the only gospel that talked about the Magi, and the Magi were uh, aristocrats in Parthia, I've often wondered if there might be a connection there as Matthew went into that area of Parthia if he went to the Magi. There was a reference uh, I pointed out earlier to Thomas, indication that Thomas uh, took the gospel to the Magi, uh, but there could have been a connection. The Magi were, were actually a tribe of Medes. So, But one thing is sure, all the traditions agree that he was martyred, but where he was martyred and how he was martyred is uncertain. Then we have another um, list. I have the list here. I don't think I underlined this list. No, I didn't in this list, so we'll just go back to the list. After Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and then Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus. So two of his names are Labaius and Thaddeus. He's also called Jude somewhere else, which adds to a little bit of confusion. Uh, we don't know uh, a lot about him. He's mentioned in Matthew 10.3, Mark 3.18. Uh, in Luke, he's referred to as Judas. Literally in the Greek, it's Judas of James. So we don't know if he's, you know, some people think he's Judas, the brother of James. That would be James the lesser. And most believe he's Judas, the son of James, but we don't know which James. I read somebody tried to argue that he was the son of James the son of Zebedee. But I don't think James and John were that old. John certainly was probably the youngest disciple. I don't think James would have been 35 or 40 or even 30 to have a son by that time. They could have also been a disciple. He would have had to have been 40 at least. That wouldn't work. So uh, we don't know exactly who he was. Nothing else is said about him uh, in the Scripture. And so we don't know what happened to him, where he went, or anything uh, related to that particular uh, destiny. The next one that's mentioned in Matthew 10.4 is Simon the Canaite, or Canaanite, that is from Cana of Galilee. Uh, there's some confusion at times because he was Simon and Peter was also Simon Peter, but this is a uh, different one. He's listed in Mark 3.18, uh, and he is also identified as Simon the Zealot. Now, the Zealots were a radical right-wing uh, element within Jewish society. It was very fragmented at this particular time. You not only had the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but politically there were a number of different uh, anti-Roman organizations. By the time you get into the 60s, uh, the zealots were operating as a sort of a guerrilla insurgent uh, force against the Romans, causing a tremendous amount of division. Uh, in fact, there are a lot of similarities between some things going on in our politics right now and the fragmentation on the, on the, among Republicans and what happened uh, among the conservative Jewish groups in Israel. They were so busy infighting that when the Romans were, had, were, were putting the final siege on Jerusalem and besieging it, that the zealots and the other groups on the walls of Jerusalem defending it against the Romans were not only shooting the Romans, they were shooting each other. And because they hated each other as much as they hated the enemy, they could not unite against a common enemy. And that is what happens as a culture deteriorates into arrogance and self-absorption. They lose all perspective and all balance. So he had been a member of the Zealot Party before he was called to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. He's identified as a Zealot in Luke chapter 6, uh, verse 15. But again, we don't know a whole lot about him. There are some traditions that indicate that he went to Britain, but we're not sure uh, how accurate those are, although there are a lot of different sourced traditions for that. Most uh, agree that he would not have stayed there, he would not have been there very long. Uh, most, Nearly every tradition indicates that he ended his life in Parthia along with Jude, the author of the, of the uh, Epistle of Jude and the brother of uh, the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ, that uh, Simon 
the zealot was sawn in two, and Jude was killed with a battle axe. And they were both martyred for, for, their, uh, for their faith. And then last and certainly least is Judas Iscariot. Uh, Judas Iscariot. And so um, I want to say a couple of things about, about Judas. Now, one of these has to do with this idea that Judas somehow managed to be a believer. And I want to go through this again, just point out that Judas was not a believer. People kept saying, well, Jesus sent him out and he cast out demons. Well, and he healed people. We don't really have specific statements that Judas did that. We have specific statements that Jesus sent out disciples and they as a group did these things, but he could have gone along and just let whoever was with him, because remember, even when they went out two by two, they were always paired with somebody. So the other disciple he was with could have been the one uh, doing things. He could have said, look, I'm the treasurer. I'm just here to handle the money. You take care of business. So there are a lot of different ways it could have happened. We have to stick with the precision of the language of Scripture. In John 13:2, when Jesus is going to is sitting down with the Passover meal with the disciples, we have extremely precise language here. We're told that when the supper ended, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now that's demon influence. It's putting an idea into the mind of somebody. Judas isn't in his heart. He's putting a thought into his heart, an idea to betray Jesus. Then when we get down to John 13, 10 and 11, when Jesus is having his interchange with Peter, and Peter says, no, 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 Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. Uh, Jesus said, look, the one who is, is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. The image here is once you're saved, you're cleansed of all sin from head to toe. But as we continue to live our life, we sin. It gets our feet dirty, our hands dirty, so we have to wash. We don't have to take a whole bath again because we're, we're saved. We're completely clean. But we have the picture is of ongoing confession of sin. But when Jesus says this, using this picture of clean, which is the same word used in John, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to uh, forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Same word. Uh, Jesus says here, all of you are clean, i.e. saved, completely clean, positionally cleansed, but not all of you. In other words, somebody's not saved. For he, Then John inserts the statement in verse 11, for he, that is Jesus, knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. He repeats the sentence again, so the reader catches it, that not everyone's clean. Not everyone saved. Now, then they go through the rest of the, the meal and the conversation, and then when Jesus gives the bread uh, out, uh, he says, whoever dips after me is going to betray me, and it's Judas who, betray, who dips the bread. Uh, we're told now, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Now, it's not the same as what we have in verse 2. He put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot. It says, Satan enters him. This is Demon possession. Now, how do we know that? Let me explain how exegesis works. Exegesis is the process of Bible study is built on understanding word usage. And certain words in certain contexts do have a technical meaning. The word for enter here is the word ace, which is a preposition to, uh, for in, going into, like our word into, uh, ace erkomai, which means to come or to go. So ace erkomai means to go into. You go into a house, it's ace erkomai. You go uh, in through a gate, it's ace erkomai. It's used many times in just a normal normal usage. But here it means Satan entered him. So, so it means you go into or inside of a location. Now, this word is used in numerous passages related to demon possession. But let me tell you something. There's no Greek word for demon possession. It's translated demon possession in some places, but there's no Greek word for demon possession. And people who don't are not well taught go, oh, then there's no demon possession in the Bible. No, that's not what I said. 
the, because we put it together from the vocabulary. It's very important. So we'll go to one episode, the episode of the Gadarene demoniac. Talked about Gerasa, some places, the regions, Gadara, the locations, Gerasa. They came to the other side of the sea, that's the Sea of Galilee, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he, that is Jesus, had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. Now, the word there, the phrase there is the word in plus the adjective unclean and the noun spirit. So it's translated, he has with him, it's a, a, a preposition of association, an unclean spirit. Now, that's a little ambiguous, isn't it? Does he, is it with, like, you know, we're arm in arm, or is it with inside of him? Ah, well, we've got to look at other lang- parallel language in the story to find out what it is. Now, when we look at the parallel story in Luke 8:27, we read, And when he, that's Jesus, came out into the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons. But that's not what it says in the Greek. What it says in the Greek is a participle built on the noun for demon, daimonizomai. Now, this is another ambiguous term. It simply means to be acted upon by a demon. Now, there are those that say, see, there's all kinds of ways people can be acted upon by a demon. They can be acted upon through demon influence from an external position and maybe even from inside. Yes, but look at the description in the text, and it will tell you exactly what the word means. The vagueness of this word is clarified by other descriptions. He's met by a man from the city who was diamondizomai, possessed with demons, and who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house but in the tombs. And Jesus asked him, what's your name? And he said, Legion, because demons had what? Entered into him. Not only is it ace erkomai, but the prepositions repeated. Now, that word ace erkomai is a clear, very clear word, meaning that something has gone from outside to inside. It has entered into. And what happens after this is Jesus is going to um, cast the demon out using the word ekbalo, meaning something goes from inside to outside. And in Luke 8.32 we read, Now there's a herd of swine feeding on the mountain, so they begged him, that is the demons inside the demoniac, the, the, they begged him that he would permit them to enter them. There's that word ace erkomai again. So ace erkomai is the technical Greek term that clarifies that having a demon, being acted upon by a demon, means to have a demon enter inside. And the only solution is for that demon to go out of. And in all of the descriptions of demon possession and the uh, casting out of a demon, you have this vocabulary, ace erkomai and egbalo. Now, if you come along and you say ace erkomai in all those other passages means to enter into the person and where they're internally controlled by a demon, but it doesn't mean that when it says Satan entered into Judas. It doesn't mean that there it, it, because he's a believer. So it doesn't mean that there. What you have just done is demonstrated that you flunked first-year Greek, second-year Greek, and third-year Greek. You are an exegetical imbecile and a theological fool because of what you have just done. This is basic syntax and grammar. And yet I know pastors who teach this, and it's insane. They are incompetent in the original languages by doing this. And it opens the door. I'm not going to say that we're going to go through the door to a whole heresy of demon possession. Just go back and read uh, read my book on spiritual warfare. Uh, that uh, We go through all of this detail in, in, um, uh, in painstaking detail going through each and every instance of demon possession uh, in the Scripture. Judas was not a believer. A believer cannot be demon-possessed. And the reason is, is because, you know, we've simplified it by saying, well, the Holy Spirit indwells you, and where the Holy Spirit indwells, the demon, uh, Satan can't indwell, or a demon can't indwell. And that's generally true. But see, Satan showed up in heaven accusing Job. He can be in the presence of God. Oops, maybe we've oversimplified. The reality is, is that when Satan, when, when you're saved, the Holy Spirit 
sanctifies you and sets you apart as a temple. And the word there in 1 Corinthians is the Greek word naos. Naos was the term for the inner sanctum of the holy of holies in the temple. It doesn't make you a temple heros, which is the outer courtyard. Any unclean person could go into the outer courtyard, but if a priest who wasn't cleansed entered into the naos, he was struck dead. Nothing unclean can go into the naos, that, that temple, that holy of holies, and that's the argument. It's not that you, because the Holy Spirit indwells you, Satan can't or a demon can't indwell you. That is a poor expression of the argument. It's because you have been converted into a holy of holies, a naos temple by the Holy Spirit that can, that sanctified person cannot, that sanctified state cannot be breached by a demon or by Satan at all. No believer can be demon-possessed. Satan was. And so he is the one that is not clean that Jesus spoke of. And so after he betrayed Jesus, uh, he's overcome, and Jesus is crucified, he's overcome with grief, and he went out and he committed suicide and hung himself. So that takes us through all of the uh, 12 disciples, what happened to them and how they fulfilled the mission because that mission converts through them to us. And that mission is that we are to continue that strategy of being witnesses, both with our lips and our lives, to everyone in the world. And that is our primary objective as believers, is to uh, communicate the gospel to everyone in the world. It's a mission of the church, and it's the mission of every single believer. Next time we'll come back, and we're going to get into the Next major division, we'll do an overview of the rest of, of uh, Acts from Acts 13 uh, to the end of the book, the three missionary journeys plus the journey to Rome of the Apostle Paul, and then we'll start getting into that first journey in Acts 13. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening and to get into uh, an understanding of how the church continued to expand uh, throughout the ancient world, how the 11 disciples took the gospel and turned the world upside down as they took the good news, the great news, that our sins have been paid for and we are set free by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the only thing we need to do is to trust in him, to believe in him. And at that instant, we have eternal life that can never be taken from us. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these truths in Christ's name. Amen.